Hello. In this lecture, we focus on the role of difference, variation in type, or diversity of types within complex systems. I want to start, though, by telling you a little bit about indigo buntings. So if you were to pick up a bird guide, it will say something like the following. The indigo bunting, identifiable by its male's dark blue feathers, lives on the edges of farms and roadways and in the brushy open spaces beneath power lines. Though small birds, male indigo buntings produce loud, piercing warbles. Neighboring indigo buntings vocalize in near identical patterns. But indigo buntings separated by even, say, a half mile sing different tunes. So now if you saw a bird that matched that description, you might say to yourself, well, look, that's an indigo bunting. But technically, that wouldn't quite be correct. What you should say is you should, should, you should say, this is a member of the population of birds referred to as indigo buntings. Now, why the hair splitting? Why make this distinction? The hair splitting is necessary because the population of birds called indigo buntings differs. There's variation both genetically and phenotypically. So the birth or death of any one indigo bunting changes the definition of what an indigo bunting is. Now, the fact that indigo buntings are a population and not a specific thing has profound implications. This variation is going to enable adaptation. So, for example, suppose there was a decade-long drought, and the only food source that indigo buntings had required shorter beaks. They had to get their beaks in these little crevices, and, or these wide crevices, and break little nuts or something. What would happen then is for the indigo buntings to survive, those with shorter beaks would do better. And within a few generations, the whole population of indigo buntings would have shorter beaks. As a result, what is an indigo bunting will have changed. Now, we can make similar, similar statements about cultures. There's no such thing as a French person, per se. Instead, there's a collection of people we call French. And these people differ genetically, and they have different talents, beliefs, preferences, and skills. In this lecture, we're going to talk about variation and about diversity. Now, they're not going to be the same thing, and we're going to see why both matter in complex systems. Now, the lecture is going to have three parts. In part one, we're going to ask, what is diversity? And how do we measure it? So we're just going to sort of figure out what it means exactly. In part two, we're going to learn why complex systems produce com diversity, why they do it and how they do it. And in this part, we're going to take a little detour that's going to be some fun. We're going to talk about differences between creative systems, human systems in which we create things, and evolutionary systems, and how those two types of systems produce diversity. And then in part three, the third part, we'll talk about the roles diversity plays in complex systems. So let me give away the plot just a tiny bit. The ability of a complex system to produce and maintain diversity enables them to be innovative and robust. Okay, part one, the naming of the parts. Before we can talk about diversity, we have to know what it is. And this isn't easy as it sounds. Over the past half century, statisticians, ecologists, computer scientists, and economists have proposed a variety of diversity measures. We're going to distinguish between four types. Measures of variation, entropy measures, distance measures, and attribute measures. Don't worry about if you don't know what these words mean. We'll get to them in a second. So before discussing them, I want to make three observations about measures in general and diversity measures in particular. First, measures can either be constructed from the ground up by experimenting with mathematical formula, or they can be derived analytically by putting down a list of desiderata. Now, the latter approach, these are sort of axioms. We want our measure to satisfy this. Now, the latter approach seems more scientific. But in practice, the two approaches are pretty much the same. So most intuitive measures are going to prove to, you know, satisfy some axioms, right? If they didn't, the measures wouldn't be useful. So therefore, 
any measure that's presented with some sort of great authority as the unique measure or class of measures that satisfies these four axioms might well have been derived from intuition and then bolstered by the logic. Okay? Second, diversity measures compress information. What they do is they transform sets of diverse entities into single numbers, into one number. So in the process, what's happening is we're, we're really condensing information. Information is getting lost. So for every one of the measures I'm going to describe, if you sit back and think about it a little bit with some effort, you're going to realize that we can take sets of things that differ fairly substantially, yet they're going to have the same diversity measure. So, for example, we might take one of these diversity measures off the shelf and find that the diversity of fonts in Microsoft Word equals the diversity of deciduous trees in Ohio. Okay, that's just nuts, right? But it could be true. It also, though, has some serious implications. Suppose we wanted to see if more diverse ecosystems were more robust. So we wanted to do an empirical test. We could gather data and go test the claim. But if we do such a test, it's going to suffer from this problem of information condensing, right? Such a test would treat species of frogs and species of trees the same way. Now, this isn't as goofy as treating fonts and trees the same way, but it's still a large leap, no pun intended. Okay, finally, because diversity measures can be applied to a variety of entities, cultures, languages, makes of automobiles, even toothbrushes, and because each of these sets of types has distinct properties, we should not expect a one-size-fits-all measure. So we're going to have lots of measures. Let me flesh this out a bit. Bird species have a genetic lineage, and they can be mapped into a graphical topology that has branches as we move back the evolutionary tree. Measures of ver bird diversity can exploit this branching structure, but this same measure won't work for breakfast cereals because breakfast cereals have no genetic history, so they can't be arranged in a branching network. Now, the abundance of measures isn't going to be a bad thing. It's going to be a good thing. It's going to allow us to pick the measure that fits the context. It's also going to allow us multiple lenses to look at the same entities. Okay, let's look at the measures. First type of measures. These are variation measures. This, they capture differences among a single numerical attribute. So examples, if we go back to the indigo buntings, would be something like beak length. Different indigo buntings have different lengths in their beaks. We can capture that variation with a distribution. What a distribution does is plots the range of values and their likelihood. So a bell curve, a normal distribution, which we'll talk about later, is an example of a distribution. Let's take an example. Consider a gas. Within a gas, each particle has a velocity, and these velocities differ. Now, gas velocities are distributed according to something known as a Boltzmann distribution. Now, a Boltzmann distribution looks sort of like a bell curve, but it's sort of smooshed up on the left-hand side and pulled out on the right-hand side. So there's not as many slow variables as you'd like, particles as you'd like, and there's a few more fast ones. Now, this variation in particle diversity matters. The velocity matters. The gas molecules that escape our atmosphere, the same ones that put holes in the ozone layer, are the ones that move fastest. Okay, how do we measure variation? The most common measures are what we call statistical variance and its associated square root, standard deviation. How do we compute this? Variance is just the average square distance to the mean. So, if I have two indigo buntings, one weighs four ounces, the other weighs eight ounces, the average rate will be six ounces. Each of these two indigo buntings differs from the mean by two ounces, right? Six minus four is two, and eight minus six is two. I square those two things, so two squared equals four. So in this case, case the average square distance, which is just is four plus four divided by two, is going to be four. All right. The question to ask here: Why are we squaring things, right? Why am I why am I just taking two minus plus two? The reason we square is we want to make all the differences positive. So if we have plus 2 and we have minus 2, if we added those up, we'd get 0. 
but by squaring them first, I make sure that variation is positive. Variance is going to be great if we can assign numerical values, but oftentimes we can't. So if I have 40 tables sitting in front of me and they're all sort of different colors, and I want some measure of their color diversity, there's no way of assigning numbers to those colors that makes any sense. So to take into account the fact that I could have different colors or different types, what I need is an entropy measure. So entropy measures capture the evenness of a distribution across types. So if red and blue tables were equally likely, right, then entropy is going to be higher than if red tables are twice as likely as blue tables. So what entropy measures do is they depend on the evenness of the type and the number of types. So the more colors of tables I've got, the more entropy I have. The best way to really get a handle on an entropy measure is to actually just do some examples. So we're going to consider one specific example, and this is called in biology the Simpsons Index. Political scientists call it the affected number of parties, and economists call it the Herfindahl Index of market concentration. Despite these many names, it's the same measure. Let's go back to the multicolored tables. Take the proportion of each color of table and square it. That's what we want to do. So for example, if a third of the tables are red, we square that and we get a ninth. So what we do is we take each of these proportions, we square it, and then we add them all up. That's step one. And then in step two, we take the inverse. We just take one over that number. Let me do an example. Suppose there's a third red, a third white, and a third blue tables. So what I'd get is I'd take a third, and I'd square it, and I'd get a ninth. And I'd do that three times. So I'd get a ninth plus a ninth plus a ninth. That's three ninths, or one-third. Then I just take the inverse of that, and that gives me three. Now, notice I had three tables of equal likelihood, and this diversity measure gave me three back. What well, turns out if I had five types of equal likelihood, and I did the diversity measure, I'd get five back. And if I had ten types, I'd get ten back. In fact, if you have any number of types of unequal amounts, this diversity measure, Simpson's index, Herfindahl index, the diversity is going to equal the number of types. Now, it's also going to be true, we're not going to bother with the math, that if you have three types, but they're not evenly distributed, they're not evenly spread, so half are red and a fourth each are blue and yellow, the diversity is going to be less than three. And in fact, in that case, the diversity would be 2.6. So this seems like a great way to measure diversity, right? If we have n types equally spread, we get a diversity of n. As they become less evenly spread, diversity falls. These are the sort of axioms, or desiderata, that we'd want a diversity measure to satisfy. So this seems great, right? But as good as this measure is, it has a flaw. It has a fundamental flaw, and that flaw is this. It doesn't take into account the differences between the types. For example, if I have a basket with 10 apples, 10 pears, and 10 oranges, that's going to have more entropy or more diversity than a basket with 11 apples, 10 iguanas, and 9 orchids. The reason why is the first basket has a more even distribution. However, all that fruit, the apples and oranges, are more similar than the apples and the iguanas. Entropy measures fail to take into account that iguanas and orchids differ from apples much more so than pears and bananas. As difficult as comparing apples and oranges may be, comparing oranges and iguanas seems, well, a little bit harder. So for that reason, we have to introduce two other types of diversity measures that take into account differences between the entities. I'm just going to do these quickly and then move on to other stuff. But these are important when we talk about the creation and the functions of difference. Okay, first, distance measures. What these do is they measure, sort of, assumes a pre-existing distance function, distance function between pairs of types. So remember when I talked about how genes let us tell how far apart two species are with the branching back in time? That's what a distance function measures. Now we can use this to show that an apple is closer to a pear than it is to an iguana. 
If we've got this distance function, and we may not, one way to measure diversity would just be to add up all the distances between the members of the set and take an average. This approach won't be perfect, but keep in mind that the members of a set have distance between them. The more distance to see, that you see, the more diversity there's going to be. This idea is going to be important when we talk about the creation of diversity. Now, attribute measures are the second way to identify type-level differences. What these do is they identify the attributes of each type in the set and then count up the total number of unique attributes. Example, suppose I have a frog, a table, and an elephant. I could list all the attributes that a table has. It's wooden, it has a flat top, it has four legs, so on. I could do the same for a frog, living creature, four legs, swims, etc. Notice that all three, the frog, the table, the elephant, all have four legs. Now you might say, wait, why would somebody care about them having four legs? Why would I care about attribute diversity? The simple reason is this, coverage. If I'm putting together a team of people that take on a business trip to Europe, I might want to make sure that I have at least one person who can speak the language of every country we're going to visit. I might not care at all about the entropy of the distribution of their language skills. Entropy's not going to get us a hotel in Poland. I need someone who speaks Polish. Now that we've got some understanding of what these diversity measures are, we're ready to get some idea of how diversity gets produced in complex systems. And I'm going to describe four causes. And these causes are going to hold both for creative systems and evolutionary systems. The first cause introduces an idea that we're going to discuss at length in a later lecture, positive feedbacks. The second has to do with how competitive or harsh the environment is. And the last two are going to trace back to our ideas of rugged and dancing landscapes. All right, cause one. Diversity begets diversity. This is a positive feedback. And this may be the biggest cause of diversity, diversity itself. The more the diversity exists out there, whether it be measured in variation, entropy of types or attributes, the more diversity that we can create. So just think of it simply. Suppose you've got a box of Legos sitting there, and all you have are red 2x2 two two blocks, blue 2x2 two two blocks, and white 2x2 two two blocks. So you can make some things. You can make a candy cane, a barber pole. You're at a heck of a time making a tree or a car. But suppose I give you hundreds of different shapes, sizes, and colors of pieces. Well, then you can make just about anything. In fact, if you go to Legoland, you can find a miniature version of New York that's got the Empire State Building, the Statue of Liberty. There's no way you can make those things with a few regular pieces of red, white, and blue Lego. The same is true with species. If you look at the tremendous variation in the types of dogs that we have, right, beagles, mastiffs, pomeranians, and even hybrids like labradoodles, we'll see that once we get this diversity of dogs, we can mix them to create even greater diversity. The logic here is totally straightforward. The more diversity you start with, the more diversity you can produce. Second cause, weak selective pressures. Biologists, not Darwin, by the way, but modern biologists, talk a lot about the survival of the fittest. When selection is not very severe, rather than survival of the fittest, we really have death of the unfit. If there's survival of all but the least fit, then what's going to happen is diversity is really going to spread. So to experience this firsthand, Next time you're at the mall or the airport, look about you at the amazing diversity of attire that you're going to see people in people. You're going to see some, like a woman wearing brown shoes, purple pants, and a tan coat, maybe next to some guy in blue chinos and a crisp striped shirt. The amount of diversity, no matter how much you measure it, entropy in the number of colors or styles or some sort of attribute measure, is mind-boggling. But if you walk into a law firm or if you walk into an investment bank, you're going to see very little variation in the way people dress. Why? In the first case, there's not a lot of selective pressure. There's no selection based on how we dress during leisure time. No one asks you to leave the mall or the airport if your socks don't match 
or if you're wearing a Clapton t-shirt that doesn't match your chinos. That's not true in the world of business. In business, attire matters a lot. That's why books like Dress for Success consistently sell. If you don't dress a certain way, you're not going to get a promotion. If there's very little selective pressure, nothing stops diversity from spreading. Cause three. This is the first of our sort of landscape causes. If we have different landscapes, we're going to have a lot of diversity. So let's go back to the mall and all that diversity we see in how people dress. To the extent there's any selective pressure at all in how we dress, it's different. So most of us at some level want to look cool or at a minimum sort of have a look. But the selective pressure we face to be cool differs. So someone who wants to look goth, that's a look that sort of requires wearing a lot of black, has different selective pressure than someone who's trying to maybe look like they're on a route to success or trying to get a job. One of the most famous examples of different landscapes come from Darwin himself and has to do with finches. Darwin showed that finches that confront different environments evolve beaks with different shapes and sizes. If a finch has to poke holes to get food, it develops a long, narrow beak. If it has to crush seeds, it evolves a short, powerful beak. This diversity arises because the problems that evolution is giving them, the problems that they have to solve, differ, so they're climbing different landscapes, so their solutions differ. Now, in some instances, the problem being solved can be the same, but evolution or the marketplace still produces diversity. This happens if the landscape has multiple peaks. If you have a rugged landscape and different experiences on that landscape find different peaks. Now, multiple peaks on the same landscape isn't quite the same thing as climbing different landscapes, but the net result is the same. Diversity. Okay, last cause. It shouldn't be a surprise. Dancing landscapes. Complexity. This is the final way in which we get diversity, and again, it's caused by selection. Now, recall if we've got a dancing landscape, or maybe another word to use for this is a coupled landscape. We've got interdependencies and payoffs. The fitness of a worm depends on the characteristics and behaviors of birds and other predators. The same is true in an economy. The profitability of an airline depends not only on its routes, pricing, and its fleet, but also on the characteristics and actions of its competitors. Metaphorically, remember, this means that landscapes perform a coupled dance. We talked about this in an earlier lecture. Movements on one landscape shift the heights of the other landscape. When the gazelle becomes faster, the fitness of extra bulk on a lion falls. Or when technology improves the dependability of package delivery, the benefits of creating an online purchase op option increase. So if your competitor changes its strategy, this may change what you do. The coupling of these dancing landscapes produces different outcomes. Okay, so we've discussed how complex systems produce diversity. Diverse parts, weak selection, different landscapes, and dancing landscapes. All four of these can be applied to, to ecological as well as social systems. That's a really cool thing about complex systems. They apply broadly. They fan out. But how broadly? The market is in an ecosystem, and an ecosystem is in a market. So what we want to do is we want to sort of see how these two sorts of systems differ. Let's just look at a few key differences. The first difference refers to the size of the leaps. Now, for the most part, evolution is a plotter. We can't cross a leopard with an ostrich, at least not yet. But that's not true in creative systems. Creative systems can take huge leaps. We can take a light bulb and a helmet and cross them and get a mining helmet. Second difference, interim viability. Evolution is constrained in that each step along the path has to be viable. So the evolution of the human eye occurred through a sequence of steps, each of which was viable. The same is true of the four chambers of our heart. These chambers could only have evolved if each step in the process creating them contributed to a viable entity. So one theory, for example, proposes that the heart evolved 
from a linear tube that wrapped around on itself to create parallel chambers. Notice how this contrasts with creative processes where interim viability just isn't a concern. If you talk to someone who designs products or any sort of engineer, you're likely to hear her say, boy, we're close, it's still not working, but we're close and we think we see a way to solve this or something like that. Evolution has no such luxury. It can't be close. Third difference, we've talked about this before, representation. Evolution is stuck with genetic representations. It can't switch to a new encoding. That's not true for creative systems. We talked earlier about how there was no rugged landscape in creative systems. Often a creative act consists of applying a new representation to an existing problem. Fourth, the fourth difference is retrievability. In creative systems, we can go back in time and resurrect old ideas and products. The Volkswagen Beetle was out of production for more than a decade, and then it's resurrected. You know, albeit with some modifications, but it was resurrected. Jurassic Park notwithstanding, that's not possible in evolutionary systems. True DNA contains history of past traits, and it's true it's possible evolution can go back to a previous design. But an evolutionary system can't just open up a catalog and order up a woolly mammoth. The woolly mammoth is gone. So these four reasons so far suggest that creative systems should be way more diverse than ecological systems. But we've got to hold on here. Let's not move too fast. We've left out one thing. Remember the story of the tortoise and the hare. Remember the moral. Slow and steady wins the race. Evolution is relentless. It is slow and steady. It never, ever gives up. It keeps testing and trying. It tries anything, at least anything that's close in the genetic record. That need not be true in creative systems. We're often blinded by what are called dominant logics. Problem solvers may be blind to some idea, even though people can combine almost anything with anything, we sometimes don't. Example, 1843, Charles Goodyear receives a patent for vulcanization. This is the process through which you remove the sulfur from rubber. When you vulcanize it, rubber becomes more elastic, waterproof, and weatherproof. It becomes like modern rubber. It becomes useful. The world had to wait 12 years before someone named Stephen Perry came up with a rubber band. 12 years. And we had to wait 56 years until January 24, 1899, before a man named Humphrey O'Sullivan thought of putting rubber soles on shoes. Now, the parts have been there the entire time. Shoes and rubber. But it took 56 years. When a creative person combines and or mutates, depends upon the creator's context, their milieu. Ideas that in one another time or place may seem obvious may not be considered because they don't belong to the set of ideas that are inside our heads. So evolution is going to plot its way through these things and try anything. Humans and creative systems try what they think of, and that can lead to blind spots. Okay, we now have some idea of sort of what diversity is, how it gets created, how ecological and evolutionary systems deal from creative systems. Now we want to do is we want to sort of see why diversity matters. We want to focus on two main contributions of diversity in complex systems. First, I want to talk about how diversity produces innovation. Let's think back of how diversity begets diversity, how with more parts, more pieces of Lego, we can produce more stuff. Successful innovation requires sorting among all that stuff and choosing the best. So let's see how this works. So let's turn to maybe one of the greatest inventors of all time, Thomas Edison. In his lifetime, he was awarded 1,093 patents. He invented, among other things, the phonograph, the light bulb, and the motion picture, cam picture camera. At Greenfield Village in Dearborn, Michigan, near where I live, you can go visit Thomas Edison's old laboratory. Henry Ford literally had it shipped board by board, brick by brick, from Menlo Park to Michigan. On the shelves of Edison's laboratories, it's totally cool, you can see jar upon jar of chemicals, herbs, metals, and so on. 
These were his building blocks. These were his Lego. Now imagine there are only 100 such jars. There's many more, but let's get supposed to 100. The number of pairs of jars that you could try is 100 times 99 divided by 2. Why is that? Well, there's 100 items to choose from first, 100 jars to choose first, and 99 to choose second. Hence, 100 times 99. However, if you were to choose shoes and then rubber, that's the same thing as choosing rubber and then shoes. So we've got to divide by 2. So hence, 100 times 99 divided by 2. That's roughly 5,000. So we can do similar math, and we can find out there's 161,000 ways to pick three jars, and there's 3.9 million ways to choose four jars, and 125 million ways to choose five jars. That's a huge number. So once we start creating stuff, we get this combinatoric explosion of new things that can be created. Edison worked by experimenting with these combinations. He once said, we now know a thousand ways not to make a light bulb. But he had 125 million ways to make a light bulb, and so he found one that worked. Now, in thinking about these 100 jars and these 125 million ways to select five of them, it's important for us to return to our measures of variation and diversity. We're not talking about variation here. What we're describing is diversity of types, which is measured by entropy. We're also sort of implicitly assuming some distance-based diversity or some attribute-based measure, depending on the items in the jars. If they weren't different in their attributes, putting them together wouldn't create any in anything interesting. So diversity drives innovation in one way by creating lots of opportunities. It also drives it in a second way. If we allow the parts to be less tangible, to be things like ideas, representations, thoughts, then it's possible to show how diversity improves problem solving. Here's why. Suppose we've got someone who's stuck on a local landscape. Let's go back to a rugged landscape. We've got someone who's stuck on a local peak. Someone else represents the problem differently. Or someone knows another direction to go. Instead of just north or east, they know to go northeast. Well, if that's true, what's a peak for the first person may not be a peak for the second person. So as a result, the second person can find an improvement. So history is full of such examples. We talked about this in the past. Einstein's theory of relativity, Mendeleev's formulation of the periodic table. These are cases where someone represented a part of the world differently and made a breakthrough. Or we've got other examples. Newton coming up with a calculus. This is a case of something coming up with a new way of searching the landscape and got us to new peaks. All right, so in addition to being a source of innovation in complex systems, diversity can also contribute to robustness. This will be our second big feature of diversity in complex systems. In a later lecture, we're going to discuss something called positive and negative feedback. We already talked about positive feedbacks a little bit here, where diversity beget diversity. And how when feedbacks are negative, we're going to see how diversity can contribute to stability. So here we're going to talk about models without any feedbacks, and we're going to see how diversity creates robustness. First, I want to see how variation produces robustness. Now, what do I mean by robustness? I mean the ability to maintain some sort of functionality despite a disturbance. So suppose you have a screw loose, not, not in your head, but at home. If you've got a screw loose and you only had a single screwdriver, it may be that the shaft is too short or the blade is too wide or it's too narrow to fit in the screw head or something. It might not work. But if you've got a lot of variation in your screwdrivers, say a set of 12, you're bound to have one that fits. Variation in your collection of screwdrivers enables you to respond regardless of which screw is loose. We've already talked about this, but in evolutionary systems, genetic variation plays this same role. Recall the opening to this lecture, that there is no indigo bunting per se, but there's a population of birds that we call indigo buntings, and that population has variation. It's that variation that enables the population to be robust to environmental changes, the differences in beak length and beak strength. Okay, so variation clearly matters. What about diversity itself? 
Does it enhance robustness? Yes, absolutely. Let's go back to this analogy of sort of toolboxes. If we have more types of tools, hammers, saws, screwdrivers, even axes, then we're more likely to be able to solve or cope with any problem. The same is true in an ecosystem. The more species, the more likely that some, or at least one, is going to survive some sort of change in the environment, say a climactic change. Example, if your garden consists of only roses and the year is very, very wet, then it's going to be the case that your rose bushes may all rot. But if your garden has many varieties of plants, it's likely that at least some of them are going to survive. The idea that the more types there are, the more responses you get and the more robust the system is, underpins the concept of requisite variety. Requisite variety says that robustness requires for every disturbance, there must exist a response. If it rains, you need an umbrella. If it snows, you need a shovel. If you've got a screw loose, you need a screwdriver. This makes sense. But there's bigger fish to fry here, literally. Recall our discussion previously about Robert May's modeling showing how diversity reduces robustness and the contradictory empirical evidence. The fact that the relationship between diversity and robustness is an open question hints at the limitations of these sort of one-dimensional characterizations. Complexity has many dimensions and many definitions, as does diversity, as does robustness. So to say diversity improves robustness in complex systems is to speak very crudely. And what we need is more careful thinking and more innovative modeling so in coming lectures, we're going to see some research that moves in that direction. That's going to be particularly true when we talk about feedbacks. We're going to see how diversity plays both roles. For now, though, let's just exhale and rest a bit and, and revel, I think intellectually at least, in the challenging questions that are before us. And we'll try and contemplate as we move forward this interesting and challenging relationship between diversity and complexity. Now in the le next lecture, we're going to look at another aspect of complexity, the question of balancing the search for better solutions against the likelihood of finding them. Thank you.